Hi, this is Ross Sutherland. You're listening to Imaginary Advice. This episode here is part three in a three-part series. So if you haven't listened yet to the previous two episodes in the feed, that's all work and no play and makes Jack a dull, then uh, yeah, please go back and listen to those first. Before we get properly going today, uh, let me just quickly say this entire podcast is funded through listener support. Think about whether you'd be willing to buy me the equivalent of a pint once a month for making this show. Or if not a pint, then something else that costs a fiver. Like a second-hand copy of Crash Bandicoot on the PS2. If you saw me in the street, would you tap me on the shoulder and go, look, Ross, thanks for doing the podcast this month. Here's a second-hand copy of Crash Bandicoot. If you'd consider that a reasonable action, then please consider signing up to my Patreon. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Ross G. Sutherland. Um, I'm currently doing a Patreon-only mini-series where I take old episodes and talk about the development process behind the episode with a special guest. And anyone who gives the equivalent of $5 a month gets access to that. Thank you so much to everyone who supports so far. I, um, I owe you one. Okay. On with the show. <laughs> So, um, as I said, this episode is part three in a series of three. For listeners who have listened to those first two parts, let me just um, quickly refresh your memory. Prop master Graham Owens, the real-life individual who typed out the manuscript for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, the person who, aged 18, uh, was tasked with typing out the phrase all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over 10,000 times, claimed uh, to me in the previous episode that whilst typing out the manuscript, induced by the hypnotic rhythm of the keystrokes, he fell into some kind of trance state inside which he found himself somehow narrating his entire life story. His fingers were hitting the same keys, typing out the same phrase over and over again, but from his mouth, he began to talk about his past, his present, and eventually his future, typing out his entire autobiography, despite only being uh, 18 at the time. Also, um... Earlier on that night, Graham and I did a little experiment where I sat at my typewriter and I also typed out the phrase, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, a few times. And Graham coached me down the phone in this hypnotic typing process of his. And, uh, well, <clears throat> after a while, uh, I began to hallucinate the same words that he did back in 1978. Almost as if his memoir was still stuck inside that sentence somehow. Now, I mean, at the time, I, I, I didn't really know what to think. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that something had happened to Graham. I just... Uh, I mean, I, was, I wasn't sure that his interpretation of events was the correct one. So this interview tape that uh, you're about to hear, it, um, it picks up pretty much exactly from where we left off last time. Graham has just told me that everything that he put into this imaginary memoir of his, everything that he pulled out of his typewriter on that fateful night in 1978, somehow it all started to come true. I mean, to begin with, I was sceptical, of course. Yeah. Especially over those first few years. But well, as time went on and, you know, more and more of the things that I predicted came to pass, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, after a while. I mean, there was no point trying to deny it, really, or fight it. Right, yeah. So you're telling me literally everything came true? Everything came true, yeah. So I'm a little worried that you're, you're kind of taking this too well. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it doesn't really matter what I think, does it? I just want to hear your story in your words, oh. all right? And I'll, it's got nothing to do with me. That's not really what I wanted to hear, but okay. No, no, I do. You know, I... So you're saying, anyway, everything in your book came true. It came true, yeah. My marriage, my health, and uh, my job, all my work. Your divorce. You said you predicted your yeah, divorce. Yeah, the divorce. Papers filed on the exact day I said they would. Which were filed by who? Which of you? We agreed together. Okay, what about your boy? Um, what was his name in your book? Buzzy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I had a son called Buzzy. Exactly as I predicted. Okay, but... I was the one who named him. Yeah. But I see what you're getting at. I, like, I know these particular details are maybe not that surprising. There are other things in the book, other things that I predicted that genuinely no one could have seen coming. Like what exactly? Like uh, I predicted Woolworths was going to go into receivership. Okay. I also, I also predicted... Liam and Chris Hemsworth. Really? I mean, in everything but name, yeah. In the book also, I uh, like I, I go through quite a lot of the films that I would work on over my career doing set design. So actually, that means that um, I predicted the existence of quite a lot of films. Uh, in some cases, like I made these predictions like decades before these films actually happened. For example? Father of the Bride. Steve Martin. Okay. License to Kill, Bond film, you know, with um, Tim Dalton. Kick-Ass, the uh, superhero film Kick-Ass. Sure. Do you know that uh, ice hockey film with uh, Sean William Scott? The Goon. Yeah, Goon. Yeah, all of them, they're all in my book. I knew about uh, all of those films before they, uh, you know, yeah. before they were ever written. Yeah, but is it, is it also not possible, Graham, that uh, the that those films, you know, that they just happen to have a certain kind of like like a sort of obvious quality to them that means that you know anyone could have seen them coming? You think that a comedy about a like a, about a big-eared man who beats people savagely unconscious on ice? You think it's just a coincidence I came up with that exact same idea in 1978. I'm just trying to make sure that this isn't, you know, just like, you know, re reading your horoscope and filling in the blanks. We all know how words can change over time. <clears throat> and, you know, it would be like so easy for the, the boundary between your imagined predicted life and your actual life to become blurred, right? It's the whole chicken and the egg thing. Like, as you said yourself with your little boy, you know, like you were the one who named him. And Yes, uh, I named him. Are you, you're not, you're not seriously suggesting that like every single thing that happened in my life from the age of 18 onwards is just some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy? Are you? No, no, no. Then what are you saying? Yeah, all right, maybe I am saying that. <sighs> but, but, but listen, I'm not saying that you did it consciously. Just having created this, 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 this whole life for yourself, it would have been very easy for you to subconsciously lean towards the future that you already had in mind, no? You must have at least, like, cons considered this as, a, as an explanation. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to offend you. It's okay, you know. I'm not offended by patronising questions. All right. Even if they trivialise my entire life experience. <clears throat> I didn't mean to trivialise. This isn't just something in my head. Okay. I don't think you're fully grasping the, the gravity of what, what, I'm what I'm trying to tell you here, right? It, 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 it requires you to completely rethink the nature of reality. The future already exists. That's what I'm telling you, right? It's already been written. Okay. Think about what I'm telling you. Because it can't just be the story of my life that's written out in advance, can it? It has to be all our stories. The whole universe, past, present, future, it already exists. It's like one giant 
fuck off giant novel. Okay. Everything, right? Everything has already been decided. You decided by who? Decided. Like fate, destiny. Decided. I mean, in your book originally, you said it was Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick was just a metaphor, you know. I might as well be talking about God or, you know, any other... Inscrutable control freak with a beard. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah. God, Kubrick, whatever. Right, so it doesn't really matter. We're never going to understand them. Mm. Just don't focus on the cult of personality around the author, right? It's the wrong path. What's important here is the fact that the timeline has already been authored. Sure, and by the timeline you mean... Yeah, you know, everything, all life, from start to finish. Like, sorry, we're getting a little bit into my life philosophy now. I realise that. No, 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 it's it's interesting, but, um, it, you know, it is a lot to take in, Graham. I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, and I don't blame you for making insensitive jokes either. But if someone can get themselves to a point where they can accept the uh, the, the truth of my experiences, they, that they will feel such an incredible burden lifted from their soul. I tell you. People act like this universe is like this vast, chaotic place where anything can happen, and that terrifies them. But in actual fact, if you took the universe and uh, lifted up the hood, See, it's not that complicated at all. Hmm. In actual fact, like the whole thing is just like one straight line. One line? Yeah, one line. Okay. No forking paths, no alternate routes. It's just like one line that runs from the dawn of time right up until the final atom winks out into nothing. Yeah. It was already drawn. That's what I'm saying. There was never any question of its shape. It was carved into the mountain long before anything began. And all of us, you, me, the human race, we're all just travelling along that line, yeah? Yeah, basically. It's like the universe is one big, um, one big kind of Pirates of the Caribbean ride, yeah? You're saying that the the experience is, is it's already locked, the pirates have been chosen, the path has been picked, and, you know, we just have to sit there and take it. Basically. Yeah, it's a facetious example, but yeah, like the Pirates of the Caribbean example. Graham, uh, just now you said that like the universe is simple if you lift up the hood and look underneath. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that what you think happened to you then? Is that yeah. back in 1978? Yeah, yeah, I lifted up the hood. Somehow when I was sat at that typewriter, I don't know, I think I typed out those words so many times that it was like... It was like wearing a hole in a carpet by walking back and forth across it, except, you know, rather than a hole in a carpet, it was a little hole in reality. All right. And then, like, that little automatic writing exercise of mine, that just let me look through that hole. And through that hole, that's how I saw the future. Well, specifically, I saw my future. I saw my little part in, you know, cosmic script to the universe <laughs> okay that's why I think the uh, the sentence is still as you put it you know still haunted to this day because I think a little bit of that hole still there you know I think he never quite closed up again so other people can look through it too like yourself you know if you know where to look <laughs> ow cough and a headache is a bad combination isn't it yeah it really hurts Overseen. I don't. I don't really know where to start with all this, Graham. I mean, like someone listening to this, they uh, they might think that, like, what uh, what happened to you was um was something much more internal opposed to external, right? That the, the the root of this might well be something uh, much more connected to uh, the, the the mind itself, your mind, uh, rather than to like the. Um, to the mechanics of the universe. Someone might say that uh, you started out back as a teenager with this uh, with this fun thought experiment about being a character in a Stanley Kubrick film, and then just somewhere along the way, that thought just uh, consumed you and took over your life. Okay, you're not gonna let this theory of yours go, are you? Well, I'm just I'm just saying like we should just address the possibility because you know. 
like people are going to be thinking it anyway. Thinking what exactly? Like I've lost my mind. Listen, if we can just like talk about this now, like I won't bring it up again, right? But if you just give me five minutes, okay? Because I've got one theory. Um, because I was going to ask you, for example, uh, <clears throat> are you familiar with the writing of William Burroughs? Naked Lunch guy. Uh, Naked Lunch, yeah. The one who shot his wife and got away with it. Yeah, that got one. away. Yeah, I mean, he was an all-round hideous human being. But um, I don't know if you're aware of any of his... I don't really read horror. Well, it's, you know, it's not horror. I think you could argue that any book written by a murderer becomes horror. Don't I don't know. That's... No. Maybe. I think it does. Point is, William Burroughs was... He was afraid of a lot of things. But there was something in culture, in, in, in society, that scared him more than anything else. And um, I, I, I wonder if uh, that thing that um, he was most afraid of, I, I think that is maybe what happened to you. Really? Really. You see... Uh, Burroughs was deeply unsettled by mass cultural repetition. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was very critical of the ways that media recycled and repeated words and phrases, cliches, stock political remarks, pundits taking the day's news and filtering it through the same old jokes, the same old wisdoms. Burroughs believed that these endlessly repeated cliches had the power to enforce a kind of mind control on the population because through these recycled phrases society was creating a standardized self-regulating code for self-expression they forced us to speak in a particular way and over time forced us to think in a particular way Burroughs believed that this uh, this mechanical regurgitation of language was affecting the human race at an evolutionary level. Like we were hurting ourselves as a species because we were denying ourselves the possibility of linguistic mutation. Because only through mutation could we expand our forms of expression and therefore expand our minds and create new forms of thinking. Instead, though, humanity was caught in this loop of mindless repetition, year upon year, using the same kinds of sentences to make the same kinds of points. We were repeating ourselves into oblivion. So this mindless repetition, it it terrified Burroughs. To him, it, it just seemed completely antithetical to the human project and because of that he tended to describe it as something alien something from outside from somewhere else Uh, and that's why when Burroughs described his fear to others he described it like this he said language is a virus from outer space so yeah he's externalizing it right almost as if these uh cliched turns of phrase that we all pass back and forth were being forced upon us by malicious alien forces that wanted to enslave us. Now, Burroughs has obviously dressed up this fear of his with some flamboyant narrative extras, but the the sci-fi trimmings are really just there to help give a face to Burroughs' fear. It's just a way to help personify this otherworldly evil that Burroughs felt whenever he opened a newspaper. And, you know, why not? If you want to have a conversation about what it means to be human, then sure, inventing evil aliens as an antithetical example is a, is a good way as any, really. If you say so. Well, I know it sounds stupid to talk about language as a virus from outer space. I mean, it's so ridiculously epic, but so is the scale of Burroughs' alarm. There was something about language that scared him so much. It could only be addressed at the level of cosmic horror. Humanity's survival was reliant on us learning to fight back against repetition. 
against the rules of language. That's why he invented the cut-up technique. You know, uh, cutting books down the middle of a page and then rearranging the paper to create new sentences. This was Burroughs' way of forcing language into new, unexpected, bizarre structures, which would therefore create room for new shapes of thought, thus breaking us free of alien mind control and uh, letting humanity think for itself once more. I am doing scare quotes around alien mind control, you know, just, just so you know. Yeah, okay. And uh, so you, you think this is what happened to me, do you? Well, not the alien part, but... Graham, you were forced to type out that sentence so many times. Have you never wondered if maybe that sentence got itself so deep inside of your head that it permanently changed the way that you construct your thoughts and therefore altered the way that you see the world? In which case... It's not that the universe really is this simple preordained Disney ride. It's just that your your perception of the universe that's been altered to perceive it as such. And Graham, I'm not saying this is like your fault at all. You were subjected to a level of repetition that, to all intents and purposes, hypnotized you. Like those ten words, that that line, that famous line, ended up indelibly inscribed onto your brain and as a result like that that line that line became your universe and your universe became that line do you see what i'm saying you know you you, you thought you were gonna marry a girl called justine justine so you went looking for someone called justine you only saw the world you were already looking for the lens through which you experienced the world had narrowed to, you know, to only let that one story in. Wow, you are, um... You're really attacking my intelligence here. No, no. I just think maybe on that night in the presidential suite you got boxed in by language and then afterwards your own private universe shrunk to the size of that box. Let me just make sure I got this straight. Right, you're telling me that I didn't have to name my kid Buzzy? Like, I could have just called him like a normal name, like Stephen. Sure. With all due respect, mate, you haven't got a fucking clue what you're talking about. So I listened to your theory now, didn't I? Well, I mean, maybe I didn't make it clear enough. No, it's absolutely clear. It's clear to me that one of us is dreaming and one of us is awake. But you don't have a fucking clue which one of us is which. <sighs> okay. Tell you what, here's an idea. Um, why don't you ask me some questions about my life rather than just jumping straight in with your fucking pop psychology diagnosis? Okay, okay, just okay. Just an idea, I, you know? Just I'm sorry. You know, I don't know, you might learn something. Let, 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 let's, let's stay on your boy. Tell me more about Buzzy. Buzzy. Yeah. Very independent. Always has been. It's not the most forthcoming kid in the world, but he's got a great sense of humor. He's got a good heart. It's very forgiving. Now, is that something you wrote in your book, or is that a thought you had as a dad? It's an opinion I actually have as a father. And it's something you Yes, and it was book. also in the book. Smart So have you told him that his life has been written in advance, or is that, you know... You mean, have I told him about the book? Yeah. No, I haven't told him. Why? Because there's not a chapter in the book where I tell him. It's not in the book. Ergo, it never happens. So you never even thought about telling him? It's not a choice here. I, I don't tell him. What if he listens to, say, this podcast? She's not going to listen to this podcast. Okay, what about your wife? Does she know about this book? Ex-wife. Ex-wife. No, she didn't. She might listen no, to this pod... No, she died three years ago. She had a heart attack. Okay. Um, yeah, she's no longer with us. Graham. I, uh, I'm really sorry. Same as my mum, really. I, uh, I felt like I was able to properly prepare for it you know so um by the time it actually happened i'd um i pretty much already made my peace with it really so you okay so what you, you're now gonna tell me that this was also some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy right 
that what like I unconsciously led her towards that heart attack because I always knew it was going to happen. No, no, no. You know, and I'm sorry I said those things. Oh, you still think so, don't you? No. Yeah. You're a shit liar. I'm sorry to um. I'm sorry to hear your loss, and uh, your and your son's loss too. Yeah, well, obviously the thing was much harder on Buzzy, because you know he didn't know it was coming. He moved abroad shortly after. Um, he needed some space, which you know I totally get. Yeah, he works for an oil company in Alaska now. We stay in touch, don't. How did he get the job? What do you mean? I don't know. I just uh, I wanted to know how he found out about it. So I got to do with anything. I'm just curious. I saw it in the paper. I told him about it. He applied for it. He got it. Okay, and this, um, this, 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 this was also exactly as you wrote it in your book, was it? Yeah, it was just how I said it would go in the book. You still try to tell me these are all coincidences? No, no, no. It's just, Graham, I'm just, uh, I'm just curious to hear about, um, about a moment in your life where you tried to resist the story you wrote. Because there must have been moments, like even if it was a tiny thing, like 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 a, like a day when you you had Thai food, when you predicted you'd go for a pizza, or even you, you had a pizza just as you predicted you would, but you know, but instead you ordered different toppings. Just some little way, just to see if you could push back, you know, just to see if it was possible. Um, I don't have an exact story like that because, well. I- I can tell you about this, I suppose. So, um, when Buzzy was turning 15 years old, um, something happened. At the time, we were, um, we were still living in my mum's old house in Ridge. The same house that you lived in as a boy yeah, a couple of miles from Elstree street studios yeah the house those days it looked very different from how my mum had it um justine hated it like she absolutely hated it staying there it just made no sense to her she, you know, she wanted us to move to a bigger place uh, somewhere a bit more lively maybe but you know it weren't in the book yeah i told her listen i'd love to move but um it's just not gonna happen we're just never gonna get around to it Anyway, we found a routine to work for us in the end. Justine was away a lot for work, so she got to travel, whereas um, I wasn't working too much by that point. Yeah, I'd pop in at L Street for bits and pieces, but mostly I could be at home with Buzzy, you know, keep him on the straight and narrow. So Justine was also in the film business, uh, art department, like me, I don't know if I said. She wasn't around for Buzzy's birthday that year because she was in Mexico with Russell Crowe building uh, ships for Master and Commander. I had the whole birthday thing. I had it all planned out anyway. Right, I worked it all out for him and then surprised him with it that morning. So what'd you give him? Five cinema tickets so he could take his pals to the cinema that night. So this was all in the book as well? It's all in the book, yeah. Anyway, it was um, snowing like crazy that night. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. But I said to Buzzy, right, we're still doing this, man. Nothing's going to get between you and your birthday. So anyway, I dropped him off at the Everyman in uh, in Barnet with the tickets. And then um, drove home again. Then... um, Went to uh, my local, the uh, Irish around the corner, um, for a pint. Also in the book. Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, the snowstorm wasn't in the book. The snowstorm wasn't in the book. I don't know why not. Uh, I think that was just an oversight, really. But um, everything else was. I mean, that's the part of the problem, really. Because... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I knew this night uh, all too well. This night, it was a uh, it was a pretty pivotal chapter in uh, that old uh, book of mine. What did you do? Well, um, 
here's what I knew in advance about how that night was going to go down. I was going to sit at that bar and drink. And I was going to lose track of time. And when 10pm came around, uh, I'd forget that I was supposed to be picking up my son. And instead, um, I'd, I'd order another drink. Then, um, when the pub closed, I was just going to drag my drunk cell phone and um, go to bed. Shit. I knew that um, after the film, Fuzzy would end up waiting an hour outside the cinema. Uh, he, he, he tried calling me, but my phone was going to be off. Okay. And then eventually my son would end up walking home, which is about an hour and a half, which is not, it's not that bad. But then um, when he got to the front door, he'd uh, he'd find that I'd put the chain on. And because I was passed out upstairs, like I wouldn't even hear him banging on the door. So in order to get into his own house, he'd have to smash a window. But sadly, in smashing the window, uh, he would um, he would cut himself uh, pretty badly up the arm. Fuck. And yeah, as a result of that injury, um, as soon as he gets inside, <laughs> rather than just getting to go to bed, after all that, he's gonna have to call an ambulance for himself and uh, go and get patched up down the A and E. That um that was the worst part of this whole chapter actually. Is is that um even once he gets inside the house like he doesn't bother waking me. Cause he knows by this point, right? He knows what's happened to me. He knows what I do when I'm left alone. He knows I'm you know, I'm gonna be too pissed to take him to the hospital myself so you know he has to call his own fucking ambulance I mean he doesn't want me there either after what he's been through this night and other nights admittedly leading up to this right he hates me in this moment and uh, you know rightly so really So yeah, that was the chapter as I wrote it in my book. So that's what I knew in advance was going to happen that night. I just don't get this. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the, the saddest chapters for sure. I just don't see why you couldn't have just written a less sad story for yourself. Oh, I didn't plan it, did I? <laughs> I just emptied my mind at a typewriter in 1978 and that's what came out, right? So I didn't choose anything. Well, it's not choosing. It's just like... Obviously, I wouldn't choose this. Nevertheless, this is my life. I was going to live through a chapter regardless, no matter whether I liked it or not. Also, keep this in mind, right? I don't just know this chapter. I know the full story of my life. I know the joy and the good times that come later as a result of me and Buzzy getting through this. Because, like, later on, me and Buzzy, we, we, we made up. But I, I dried out. We went on holiday together. I took us to this waterfall in Panama. I apologised. He forgave me. Like, we hugged. Very cinematic. Exactly. Right. There's this whole redemptive arc to this thing. And for that to pay off, like you, you need the lows as well as the highs, right? You need the lows to make the highs sing, don't you, right? So, you, you know, like, you got to just push through the sad chapters in order to get to the happy chapters later. So you did it then? Just as you said, you wouldn't have book all those years ago. You chose not to pick him up. It wasn't a choice. I didn't choose anything. The future just simply, it just happened as it was always going to. But yeah, I didn't pick him up. And you don't regret doing that at all? 
just leaving your kid out there in the snow. I did exactly what I was always going to. Nothing more, nothing less. Right. Also, I remember you're not listening. Like I knew in the long run that it was all going to work out between me and Buzzy. Right. I knew once he got out of hospital, yes, he'd leave home to live with Justine's mum, and that Justine, you know, she'd eventually use this night as grounds for our divorce. But then, like that, would be my motivation to uh, to, to stop drinking, which would in turn lead to that hug with Buzzy under the waterfall I was just talking about. Right? I always knew it would work out in the long run. Right? I knew it at 18 when I wrote the book. I knew it at 27 when Buzzy was born and I was first holding him in my arms. And I knew it at 42 when I was sat in the pub that night watching the clock as it got closer and closer to closing time. I always knew. I always knew it would work out all right in the end. Sure, sure. But, like, <sighs> Graham, in the book, you said that you forgot to pick him up. But, but what actually happened was you didn't forget anything. In fact, you had to remember not to pick him up, right? And that's not, is that even the same thing? I did hope that, uh, you know, I, I, I would genuinely forget. Because that would have made it much easier. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons that I, uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I drank so hard that night. But, um, you know, I, I, I could never quite forget that he was um, standing out there in the snow, trying to call my phone, leaving me messages. Before leaving the pub, I um, put away the best part of a bottle of whiskey. Because when I went to bed, I really wanted to be out cold. I, I didn't want to accidentally wake up in, 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 in the middle of it all and hear him banging on the door, you know, while I just lay there, not letting him in. But, uh, yeah, yeah, turns out I um, still heard him. You know, I, I heard the banging and, and the glass smash and you know, him stumbling around in the dark looking for something to bandage it with. Heard the ambulance arrive. But yeah, I um, didn't come out of my room until they'd um, taken him away. bedroom and went downstairs into the front room. I didn't want to turn the lights on in case um, I saw anything I didn't want to see. The curtain was blowing in the wind. I could, I could make out the broken glass beneath it. And I... Um, Felt something wet between my toes, and uh, I realised that I was standing in his blood. It uh, it pulled on the spot where he'd been standing when he called the ambulance. It was uh, more blood than I'd been expecting. What happened? Just the next thing I knew, I was just lying in it. I, I was crying, lying in his blood. I um, I couldn't breathe. I just, uh, just felt like my whole body was being turned inside out. Yeah. The funny thing is, there's um, in the book, there's 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 nothing about me crying like that. I mean, it wasn't in the book. But then it wasn't not in the book. Okay. But, you know, um, once it started, oh, yeah, I just, just couldn't stop myself. Okay. I'm a little confused. You asked me if, if there was ever a moment where I in, in, intentionally 
resisted my own future, right? So this is just this is the closest thing I have. Okay. What is it that you're saying that you did? So there's nothing in my book that covered the rest of that night. In the book, uh, the story just picks itself up tomorrow morning. I wake up when I get a phone call from the hospital, and then I have to go and basically face what I've done to my son. He's bandaged up. He tells me what he thinks of me. Then I'm, uh, I'm on the phone the rest of the day to Justine, and then I'm on the phone to Justine's mum. Basically, from the following morning onwards, right, the next six months, they were pretty much laid out for me completely. But, um, you know, and, and, until the following morning, I was, um, I was just in this little unwritten moment. It's like I, I wasn't supposed to be awake, but I was. It's almost as if two pieces of paper had been stuck together and, and, and now they've been peeled apart, creating this little little blank interval between chapters where, I don't know. I bet that felt good, didn't it? What did? You know, for a minute you didn't have to compel yourself to do something that you, you didn't want to do. I bet it felt good. Have you been listening to me at all? No, it didn't feel good. Okay. It was hell. It was like waking up in hell. Those were the worst hours of my entire fucking life. To suddenly find myself outside the book. I just didn't know what to do with myself. Okay. I just... I, I ended up walking up South Mim services on the M25. South Mims is right by us in Ridge. Sorry, it's a short walk. But, you know, you, you wouldn't walk it. But I, I, I literally just, I just didn't know how to make decisions. I, I know, I, I, I should have put a coat on, I should have put shoes on, but I, I just couldn't think straight. It's just like being uh, in Elstree again. You know, back when I was 18, when I got, uh, when I got stuck in that room with all the doors. And uh, I couldn't get out and you know, the world is just calling me in all these different directions at once and you know I'm just trapped to the center of it next thing I know I'm uh I'm standing in the KFC at, uh, South Mim services and I'm just Looking up at this uh, huge cardboard cutout of Colonel Saunders, he's just looking down at me with that, you know, that grin of his. And the, uh, the lad behind the till is saying, uh, "What do you want, mate? What do you want?" And, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know what I want. Then I uh, I look down and I. I see that um, my hands and um, my shirt are all covered in Buzzy's blood, you know, from when I was rolling around in it earlier. Now I'm stumbling into the lavies. It hurts so bad to walk because like, my feet are just like blocks of ice. I, I, I see that there's a shower room at the back of the toilets. So I push in there, but on the other side of the door, it's just it's just a wall of steam from the showers, right? And when the steam hits my freezing cold skin, it, it, it fucking burns like acid. And the pain of that is just so intense and such a shock. I just, scream right I just go down basically I, I crumple to the floor I'm saying to myself get up but I can't my, my body is just 
it's just stopped responding to my brain altogether. Then I'm out of this cloud of steam. I start to make out these bodies coming towards me. These three naked bodies. Are you truckers? I assume, because like you know, they're the young people who actually use showers like this, right? Yeah, most likely. Yeah. They're coming towards me. Out of the steam. Yeah, their bodies just look like these uh, wet balloons. Half deflated balloons. And... Uh, what were the dicks like? Oh, mate. out to me and he says are you okay and I uh, I just don't know what to tell him because I didn't know what I was doing there I didn't know what his purpose was I didn't know if it was right or wrong I didn't I didn't know what any of it meant <sighs> anyway one of them drove me home in the end and he was actually really nice but uh, still, no, in answer to your question, it did not feel really good to find myself outside the book. You know, it felt like hell had opened up and swallowed me whole. You, you just panicked, man. That's all. And I think that's completely understandable, right? Because for a couple of hours, you were outside the prescribed life that you'd created for yourself. I mean, Graham, you, you'd lived without free will for so long that you just didn't know what to do with it when you gave it back to yourself. Anyway, when I woke up the following morning, I uh, got the call from the hospital. Just as the book said I would. And then I cleaned myself up, drove into A&E, just as the book said I would. And saw my son and he told me that you know he never wanted to see me again just like the book said he would and as he said it I felt like just such relief to be back within the pages of the story that I knew <laughs> right to just to feel those familiar words beneath me once more I, uh, I know how this sounds, but I had to clench my teeth to hide my smile. No, I really did. I can hear you touching me. I didn't say anything. Whatever withering comment you want to make can you just keep it to yourself okay because in the end you know it has all worked out fine between me and my son so <laughs> you really think i'm a piece of shit for what i did don't you you know for scaring those truckers don't be a fucking smart ass you still think i had a choice don't you like this is all something that i forced to happen rather than just something that it was always gonna happen whether i liked it or but not. how do you like, know that always gonna happen Regardless. How do you know that? Do you know what it feels like to be told that the way you see the world is damaged? Do you know what that feels like? You know, to, to, to basically be told that your view of the world, to have that described as a form of mental illness, I don't know if you have any yeah, idea. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. But, um... It's a horrible thing to say to someone. I mean, personally, I think the way that you look at the world is utterly fucking ridiculous as well. But, like, the difference is, like, I would never say that to you. You think my outlook is... Okay. I mean, I'm not the one in the middle of some kind of emotional breakdown. Okay, do I do I sound like I'm having an emotional breakdown? I mean, out of two of us, I'm not the one who's forgotten how to sleep. Really? Am I? Okay. Yeah, pretty basic part of being human, I'm sorry to say. Uh-huh, okay. Kind of suggests that maybe you're not quite on the same path as the rest of us. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, look, I'm not going to insult you. 
No. No, no, I'm not, <laughs> no. You're like, you're clearly an angry person. Like, you push your opinions on other people. You're clearly carrying a lot of resentment. Call it a lot of resentment. What are you saying? No, go on. No, no, I want to hear it. Tell me about my damaged brain, Gray. And go on, tell me why, why is my worldview so defective? Well, I mean, there's nothing original about it. Oh, great. Met a lot of people like you. Really? Well, yeah. congratulations. Yeah. You've all got this delusion that you can change things. You all think that you can make a difference, don't you? But you don't actually fucking do anything. You just talk about it. And then when the changes never appear, you get angry, don't you? You get frustrated and you retreat into yourself further and further. All right, this is ridiculous. All the while, all the while clinging to the idea that soon things are going to get better even though it's that exact fucking delusion that's destroying you inside. You uh, you certainly seem to know a lot about me. Yeah, it's not nice when people make assumptions about your life, is it? But I am right, aren't I? You're incapable of accepting the world as it is, and that hurts you so much. It makes you ill and sad and lonely. And yet, you're still convinced your worldview is right, aren't you? The future is whatever you make it. You're like a child with their hand on the hot stove and you're thinking to yourself, oh, fuck, this hurts. And yet, despite everything, you never lift your hand off. You just stand there, like, taking it like a fucking moron. You have no idea what this year has been like for me, oh, all yeah, right? Yeah, 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 of course, of course. It's all about you, mate. All about you. And I'll tell you something that I do know for absolute certain. Whatever it is that's keeping you up at night, you did it to yourself. How does that sound? Flip back at you. Yeah, shoes on the other foot now. You did it to yourself. Really? Let me guess. Uh, falling out with friends, have you? Other people weren't reacting the way that you wanted them to react, were they? So you cut yourself off from them, right? Then you lie in bed at night, worrying that you can never go back. Am I close at all? <laughs> See, that's you torturing yourself for nothing, mate. Because it changes nothing. It does nothing. Every day, you retreat further from the world. And all it does is make you more and more miserable. Oh, sure. And I suppose you've been having a lovely pandemic, haven't you, mate? No, I haven't done anything. I haven't put anyone at risk. The difference between you and me is when people do silly bollocks around me, I don't get upset. Because I know they're always going to do it. That's who they are. That's who they always were. They never had a choice. They were always going to be twats. So that means I don't get a beat up my ass about it the same way that you do. I don't lecture people or try to change them. I just accept people as the twats they are, and I move on. And that's why I sleep at night, mate, and you don't. Because what? Because like you, you've already accepted that people are shit and that everything is fucked. Is that, is that it? Yeah, basically, yeah. So right now, part of me is really struggling to talk to anyone. Like... Like, I literally don't know how to talk to another human being. I just feel like I've retreated so much into myself that, um, that I don't know how to do it. I, yeah, how to talk to people. I mean, talking, it actually, it makes me feel more lonely. Fucking told you. Right all along, I knew whatever it was that was going to be keeping up at night would be some fucking stupid, self-inflicted anxiety. Oh, I'm sorry, Nostradamus. I'm sorry for not giving you credit for the most obvious fucking prediction in the world. Yeah, of course my insomnia was self-inflicted. Listen, I don't take any pleasure in knowing yourself. Oh, thanks. That makes me feel so much better. I, I, I wouldn't be telling you about this if, like, in some way, like, I, I didn't think this could help you. Like, at heart, like, the, the, the book that I created, it, it is a self-help book. But right? it is a book about survival. It's a book about accepting our fate, all our fates. Okay, say you pass a homeless person in the street, right? What do you say to yourself, Graham? Right? Do you, do you say to yourself, oh, that person was always going to be homeless and you were never going to give them any money anyway? So what, is that is that right? Is that You just chalked that up yeah, to destiny yeah, too, do you? Yeah, I do. It's sad and it's nasty, but it was also inevitable. <laughs> all right, I think I heard enough. The fate of the world, it's already been decided. It's done, okay. mate. I don't think there's any point in continuing this, Graham. No? No. No, I don't want it. Want what? What is it that you don't want? To become you. Okay. So you, you don't think that we have anything in common? Not really. Nothing at all. <laughs> that 
That's hilarious. I mean, no offense. None taken. So, you know, like the other journalists that um, I made do this thing with a typewriter, uh, you know, girl from Rolling Stone, <coughs> lad from the Groniad. You know, they didn't believe me to begin with either. But, like, they did both come around in the end. <laughs> really? I think it was the point in the conversation when they both realized that uh, they were in the book, too. <coughs> After all, like, they'd met me. The book was off my entire life ago. They were in the book. It's pretty obvious, really. And, um, yeah, they were right, too. Like, of course they were in there. I'd known about both of them ever since that night in 1978. And you, too, obviously. Of course, like, you're in the book, too. <laughs> when I was other journalists, when they realised that. But, yeah, I, I think that was the initial trigger. That's when they began to think to themselves, hmm, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe I'd like to read that chapter right here. Why? I don't know. Maybe there's, you know, more detail there than you think. Maybe they just wanted to know what happened to them after the interview. Maybe, maybe they just wanted to know what happened to them in the end. You can't blame someone for wanting to know, can you? So did they ask you? No, I wouldn't tell them. Even if they had asked, I wouldn't have told them. No, if they wanted to find out, they'd have to go through the same process as me. They'd have to go back to their typewriter, type it out for themselves. Because you already know, right? The, the book's just waiting there. It's just there in the typewriter for anybody who wants to type it out. But you, you've got to do it for yourself. Like, you, you, you have to. I mean, it's the only way you truly believe it, isn't it? I don't think that's too much to ask, really. You know, I'll type the entire thing out in a single night. Eight hours, ten hours. You might not be quite as fast as me, but really, how long is it going to take? You see, that's what I think the, uh, the other journalists, I think that's what they were grappling with towards the end of our conversation. Even as they were talking to me, they were already thinking about what they were going to do next, you know. As soon as the interview was over, they were going to hang up the phone, go straight back to that typewriter of theirs, start typing, letting my life story flow through them. Then, you know, by the time the sun came up, they'd have reached the chapter of my life where they appear in the text. And then, they'd know the truth. I can't tell you the details, but I can tell you that they found what they were looking for. And they're certainly stronger people now that nothing in the world can surprise them. <clears throat> Incidentally, not important really, but they do both sleep better at night now too, I can tell you that much. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. <clears throat> I can hear it in your voice. Deep down, you want what I have. You can feel it inside you, right? Even these words, these words that we're saying to each other right now, like they were, they were already decided for us. You know that, don't you? Always known it. The story was already written. Jesus, dildo, frog, French, Daniel Radcliffe. What about that? Was that in the script? Yeah. Knew I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah was. that was in the book, I, right? I, I, I knew you were going to say that. Orangutan sex party. Jelly dentist, Randy Newman. Planet Fonzie. Nook, 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 nook. Flammo. Diggy, 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 Okay, listen, I don't know if you can still hear me, but um, I'm, I'm just going to guess that uh, you're sat back at the typewriter now. If you can hear me, I'm not suggesting that uh, I choose to let go of responsibility for your actions. You're, uh, you're suddenly going to find yourself running around a hotel in Colorado 
waving an axe around like a maniac. The, the transformation we're talking about here is, 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 is nothing as like, ridiculous and melodramatic as that. That's just the supercharged Hollywood version. What, what's going to happen to you is it's, it's going to be um, it's going to be much more banal, really. It's, it's much more low key. You, 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 your friends and loved ones might not even notice that you've changed, but um, you'll know. On the inside, you'll um, you'll know that uh, you've let go. The universe is um, basically just one big horror novel written a long, long, long time ago. And you can't change a page of it. Just remember that like, there's no shame in flicking ahead in a book just to see what the end looks like. Right? No shame in it at all. You just want to check out the, the final monster. Right? You, you want to see how it all works out. And who doesn't? Who doesn't? I mean, deep down, I think you already know what happens. But, uh, you want to hear it said out loud. So there's no more reason to fight it. Am I right? Well, anyway, um, you're welcome. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll drop me an email when this episode comes out. Uh, I don't really listen to podcasts, but, um, I'll try and give it a hustle on the old, uh, bill message boards. Anyway, all the best, mate. Yep, take it. Jack a dull boy, all thirst and no shame, all actions now void. One foot in the grave, can't break the convoy. Uncertain the name in Saturn's employ. Your work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That was shit. Jack boy, your dull play and the work makes a jack boy, your dull play and the work makes take back all the words I said the first place. Change tack, reimagine what the verse states. Mail back, lost my letters in the first case. Turn back, shouldn't be rapping in the first place. Why is that? We're on 41 in birthdays. Flashback, my pin number still our first date. Contact. You were the first one I heard say Fuck that, acting like life is prearranged Jack play doll and make all a boy work, no Jack play doll and make all a boy work, no Crack that skull Recirculate the journals Passions dull when songs go round in circles That's my call to paint the word purple Let my numb subconscious take the first fall If life's so predictable and awful Each our faults pre-written by an oracle Look at me, here, dancing with a turtle <laughs> Look at me, here, dancing with this turtle Look at me, here, dancing with this turtle. Look at me, here, dancing with this turtle. And tell me you knew for absolute certain that this is how it always was gonna end. Cut.
part of this three-part uh, story. All three episodes were written, performed, and produced by me, Ross Sutherland. Uh, the fantastic incidental music in this podcast series was by Jeremy Wormsley. Um, thanks so much, Jeremy. For more of Jeremy's music, go to jeremywormsley.com. Just in case there was any doubt whatsoever, uh, this podcast does not endorse the views of Graham Owens. I hope that's clear. Um, we can all make a difference, both to our own future and to the future of each other. And on that note, if you're based in the UK, please consider a donation to the Trussell Trust to help food banks right now. Food banks have been under tremendous strain during lockdown. Uh, go to trusseltrust.org to make a donation. Also, UK mental health charity Mind is asking for donations right now. The coronavirus pandemic is having a huge impact on our mental health. They run a helpline and a legal helpline to advise on issues of law around mental health. Go to mind.org.uk to make a donation. Thanks again to everyone who supports the show right now. It uh, wouldn't exist without you. I'll be back next month with something else. Uh, I don't know what yet. This series was, it was an emotional one. It really, it went loop the loop. It was exhausting. So yeah, we'll come back next time and we'll do, we'll do something completely different. Yeah. Anyway. My name is Ross Sutherland. Thanks for listening. <laughs>